Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Well, many thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design okay. today. Um, we're really thrilled to be joined by a really interesting TED speaker, TEDx speaker, um, Criswell Davis. Um, he's co-founder of the Timber and Forestry Foundation. He's also president of, and it's got a great company name, Mighty Oaks Consulting. He's internationally recognized as an expert on American hardwood. Um, and he's also um, going to be writing. So look out for his article in the forthcoming first edition of the Journal of Biophilic Design, which is being published as a magazine this October, um, this year, so 2022, if you're listening to this in 2023. Um, Chris, well, many thanks for joining us today. Really, really appreciate it. Could you um, start by telling us about yourself and uh, what got you into trees and wood? Uh, I'd be happy to. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. I'm honored and humbled, actually, that you asked me to, to join you, because this is a passion of mine that uh, came I'll have to just start at the beginning and say it came out of nowhere. My background before I got into the hardwood business was running resorts uh, and country clubs in the Western U.S. And, you know, in doing so, I ran um, restaurants as well. But a friend, we were living at a winery in California in the Napa Valley, and I ran a resort in the Napa Valley. It was a beautiful place. But a good friend of mine who had his family owned the largest hardwood distribution network in the United States at the time. He, we had known each other for 10 years and he wrote to me once and he said, would you, well, let me start with this, Chris. Well, you can't really live in the Napa Valley long-term. It's too expensive for you and raising your family. And I'm wondering if you'd ever thought about selling hardwood lumber. And I said, I can honestly say no to that question. I've never thought about it once. And he said, well, consider this. Since you can't afford to live in the Napa Valley, and he was right, uh, <laughs> you can uh, move to Cincinnati where you can afford to raise a family. And I'll just say that I can teach you hardwoods easier than I could teach somebody in our mill to be a people person. You're a people person and I can teach you the hardwood you need, but I want you here as an outside salesman. And it was a huge career leap for me. I leaped at the opportunity, moved to Cincinnati and was being shown how to how it works in the mill. I mean, I didn't know the difference between red oak and walnut. You know, I was completely fresh. And uh, he said, after two weeks, he said that outside salesmen just quit for the territory I was going to give you. So you're an outside salesman now selling wood and plywood and moldings. And it was just sort of mind blowing. But with all of the challenges of taking on that knowledge as fast as I could, I discovered that if I just went into a cabinet maker shop or a flooring guy or somebody who's making furniture, I would just ask them to, I mean, I would be completely forthcoming and say, I really don't know anything about what you do. I know that you buy this lumber from my competitors. And uh, all I want from you is to teach me what you do and teach me how to be the best lumber salesman that you have. And if you're honest with people, I have found they will share their knowledge with you. So I very quickly learned 
what these people needed, what was their standards of quality and the grades they needed. And uh, within a few months, I began to grow, grow my territory and I took that territory and increased its sales by a factor of seven within a year. So what? once I got over that hump, now I'm in their shops and I'm really fascinated by what this board turns into, yeah. right? It's just beauty out of something that grew in the ground and that beauty will last forever. Yeah. So I wound up my career I started it in 1988 and my career and took a big leap in 96 when I started selling full truckloads to large-scale manufacturers and then in 06 I was tasked by my company with whom I worked for 22 years it was a sawmill high-end specialty sawmill and I was tasked with the idea instead of selling because I'd done really well with that uh, promoting their particular kind of hardwoods and anyway one thing led to another it was all organic and i wound up presenting to the aia around the country uh american institute of architects uh, as a certified provider uh, i began to tell the story of hardwoods and for me it was just i reflected on my take on it that this beautiful agricultural product which is slow growing more slow growing than wheat, for example, but it is doing really good things for the environment because it's absorbing carbon. And as you can see right back there, offering visual beauty, especially in the fall when it has beautiful colors. And I, I had to figure it out. I challenged people, and I, I think I say this in my article, I challenged people before these presentations to mount an argument against the idea that just any space that you're in that's clad in wood is a better space. However, you can articulate that or quantify it or qualify it is irrelevant. We just feel better. And I said, if somebody in this audience wants to stand up and say, I don't feel better in a wood clad environment, well, then I'll have at it with you. But nobody has. And I've talked to over 15,000 architects and designers around the world and no one has taken me up on that challenge. So my whole approach is to take it to a human level. I don't get lost in the technicalities too much unless people ask me questions because I certainly know about kiln drying and know about which species are better for which applications. But I mostly bring it down to the human level. And at some point, in, as I've been doing this for a few years, I grew to understand this concept that I just felt intrinsically as biophilic design. So bi biophilic design as a concept came new to me, new in probably 2010, 2011. But as I focused my presentations more on biophilic design and sustainability and carbon sequestration, as well as aesthetics, the aesthetics have to play a part in it. And I lectured for four years to the Illinois University School of Architecture and during the materials class for the School of Architecture students. And the dean of the school said, Christwell, your presentations are always rated amongst the most enjoyed by our students. And I said, well, I have to tell you, I'm pretty good at this, but I get the sexy stuff, right? I get to show you these beautiful environments where wood is really played up and biophilic design is taken into account. Other people may come and talk about concrete or steel or, 
geothermal heating or something like that. <laughs> so uh, I've had great success with it. I've had really good success with it. And uh, I just think that from this core ethos uh, sprang other elements to it. I mean, I'm talking about how trees have one job in the biosphere, because now I've got to battle those who think we're just destroying the forests. Like you know, they see uh, burning of the rainforests in South America, and they think that I'm part of that, or we in the American or North American hardwood business are part of that. that we're just destroying all the trees when in fact, as I did more research, I discovered that we're actually growing twice as many trees, more than twice as many trees now as we did 50 years ago, and twice as many as we're cutting every year. So I drove me deep into sustainability and actually the regenerative nature of our forests. And even now, recently, I have grown to understand that this regenerative nature of the product, the timber, is applies in South America where I thought it never did. I thought that uh, the reason they're burning the rainforest is and destroying it is to convert that land to uh, agricultural uses such as grazing cattle or planting bamboo or palm or soybeans. And then I have just in this last year discovered that there are completely sustainably managed and legally harvested gorgeous woods from uh, especially Brazil that are FSC certified forest stewardship stewardship certified um, to show that it's all legal hasn't infringed upon the rights of the indigenous people and it's managed in such a way that the mature trees are taken opening the canopy allowing sunlight and rain to reach the seedlings on the forest floor so you know, with my passion to tell people this story, I have constantly learned more each year about it. And so let's start back at 2010. I'm learning about biophilic design. I'm talking to architects around the world. 2013, I hit what's known as a speed bump where I was diagnosed with cancer. It was stage four cancer. Grave circumstance came out of nowhere because I had I rarely eat food out of a box. I was a marathon runner, never smoked, casual social drinker, none of the elements that would lead one to say, oh, well, my lifestyle is the reason I got cancer. But so it hit me like a truck. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, being stage four, it was my care was really critical. Mm -hmm. I went in for a biopsy thinking and having been told by my doctor i'm going to wake up groggy in the car on my way home with my wife driving me home yeah. they would evaluate the biopsy and then decide on the path of treatment instead of waking up in the car with my wife i woke up in the icu intensive care unit mm -hmm. surrounded by nothing but uh, stainless steel tile monitors uh, cords yeah. plugs everything i yeah. had a tracheostomy which is so i could breathe and i had a stomach feeding tube and it was for lack of any better term terrifying mm, yeah and nothing about the environment helped it be less terrifying and fortunately of course i'm here today i survived that and I, it took me about six months to become somewhat normal 
And then I, once I could get out and about, I, my recovery was relatively rapid. But let's fast forward now two years from that. And I was diagnosed with another cancer. It's the way of, of the cancer life that it was a less dramatic, but still scary cancer. Mm. And I, it involved surgery. And in this case, I woke up in a room that was completely clad in wood with a beautiful picture window looking out at woods. And I realized intrinsically and viscerally for myself what the advantages were to that. I was out of the hospital in a couple of days. They expected me to be there a week. And uh, my recovery was incredibly fast. I was recovered in five days. Wow. So if we jump back now one year, I leading me to that decision uh, of, about uh, biophilic design actually improving my life, I had been asked by the health group in Dayton, Ohio, where I was treated for the first cancer, to be part of the patient advisory council they developed for uh, the building of a brand new cancer center. And this is, this is interesting. They really wanted to solicit the input of patients who are, who are surviving or currently under treatment. We're building, a, we have a blank slate. We're building this beautiful building. It's a $125 million building. So what would you as the patient, current or past, say about that environment? And I being really intensely involved in biophilic design and education about that, I went into this session with 22 people, none of whom had a background like I did in hardwoods or biophilic design. Yeah. But the exercise was, Canada Designs out of Chicago, who designed the building, put up on a wall pictures and renderings, photographs and renderings of lobbies of doctor's offices and hospitals and some pictures of rooms. And they said, we, you all have a red, yellow, and a green sticker. Uh, we want you to go up to the wall and look at all these pictures and put a green on the pictures that you say, that's where I want to go to yeah. see my doctor or be treated. Yeah. Uh, yellow is, uh, it just doesn't look nice, whatever. Yeah. Red is absolutely not. Yeah. So I went up quickly and did my uh, thing and I sat back to watch what other people did. And wherever I put a green, most people put a green as well because it was a situation where there was, there was flora growing in the lobby or there was a view to woods outside. Yeah. And uh, these, this was 21 other people who had, did not have the orientation that I did to go into it. So I'm looking for biophilic design. They were not looking for it. They were just looking for something that felt good. Yeah. The people from Canada Designs asked if, if there's a message here. What is the message with all of this? And I, I raised my hand and I said, I might offer an idea of what the message is, <laughs> that this is biophilic design. People on a cellular basis yearn to connect with nature. Yeah. And in doing so, they feel better. So these people who before today would never have said anything about this all concurred that that lobby or that doctor's office is where I want to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, I gave many, many primer on how uh, they should look at that. And in the end, we were able to shape 
the way this new uh, cancer hospital looked. If you're going to put a patient with a doctor hearing a lot of bad news or talking about next steps, you want to put those at the outside of the building next to a window that looks out at yeah. woods like I have behind my house. And so I was effective in doing that. You know, there's still a hesitancy to put wood on the floors because of all the dis disinfectant stuff that needs yeah. to be used. But wherever we could put a representation, a, a wood sculpture on the wall or something like that. And even where we couldn't put something that's actually natural, uh, we installed, for example, I don't know if you're familiar with a CAT scan. Hopefully you've never had to have one, but you lie on a table and go into this sort of radar machine. Uh, and it's very scary because, you know, when you go into this thing and get the scan done coming out, you're fearful that it's going to be bad news. Yeah. So what we did is we put a panel where you're going to be lying before you go into the, the tubular scan that's got a 4K loop of video looking up at the sky. Lovely. You see trees around and birds flying by and clouds going by. And as we can get into, the sympathetic nervous system relaxes. Mm -hmm. And this has all been empirically measured. And so it's, that's what really took my interest in this to a higher level than it had ever been before. Mm -hmm. Because I'm really starting to understand, you don't, tr it's my belief that you don't truly understand something unless you've experienced it. Yeah. Like I can look at somebody jumping out of an airplane <laughs> and, say wow that would be something but i don't really understand it until i've done it i have not by the way i've yeah. chosen to not experience that but uh anyway i hope i haven't given you too long-winded an answer but that's that's where i i came from and yeah. i i'll be getting into stuff that we'll get into later so yeah. go ahead with your questions yeah no i i, I mean I, i'm getting, my next question actually is you know why for you why do we need biophilic design in our built environment i mean you've expressed obviously firsthand what what you've you know through healthcare right. and, and that and we are going to speak right. later i mean I'm, I'm launching a campaign here in the uk to try and get biophilic design into all every nhs you know so that it becomes less right. um so maggie's yeah. center as we've talked about maggie's center is a prime example of that yeah. um and I, I don't know how to uh, it would be great if your listeners could even just google maggie's center look at them but these are healthcare facilities uh for cancer patients and they're designed with the interests of the people with loved ones in treatment or those about to go into treatment and the one I'm thinking of right off the top of my head has a beautiful tree growing up the center of it. Mm -hmm. And so you're surrounded by wood. All of the interiors are wood. And then they've got actual live tree growing up the center of the thing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, we can get into that. But I think that uh, in healthcare and, well, all of our built environment, we, we have to acknowledge that we spend about 90% of our time indoors. Yeah. And... Yes, we can go out and we can get into forest bathing and all that. We can go outside, but often we're just, you know, relegated to being in, in your office at work or yeah. uh, sitting at home doing writing or Zooms. And yeah. it's best that that environment be supportive rather than destructive of your sense of well-being. 
Mm. And they find there's empirical studies to show that students who study in woodclad libraries and classrooms retain information uh, more easily. They are more focused. Uh, they have found this, of course, in design now. Uh, all the architects and designers in the world understand biophilic design, and they're trying to focus on, along with sustainability and carbon sequestration, the well-being of the occupants of their spaces that they build. And this is something that was not taken into consideration in 1980 or 70 or 50s or 60s. It was just, what's the environment that I can build that will last the longest? And uh, so anyway, it's, it's important that one look at all of the data that's there to support the idea that you just feel better. Yeah, absolutely. So. Absolutely. I mean, you obviously with the whole um, timber and you're obviously an expert in that. I mean, for you, why are why are trees important? Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, personally, I've, I love trees and I just um, I think they're um, and like we talk about the Maggie Center and having a tree in the middle. I mean, it's like it's life, isn't it? It's living things. It's, it's to remind you that actually, you know, there is life. It is life. It just gives you that it just you just pick up the energy you, you like you say it's just this intrinsic feeling um inside um that you get when you relate to it but just just um from your point of view like from trees trees why why are they important well i had to figure this out for myself before i could teach it yeah. uh which i have done now for a long time it's why well why is it that we relate to trees and nature and all that stuff and i came up with this theory that we we resonate with wood in the same way we resonate with trees in that there are some similarities between trees and humans that are pretty important. Number one, we're both about 60% water. We're both about 18% carbon. We both have a peak life of about 80 years. I mean, there's some trees that can stand in the forest a lot longer than that, but and there are people who will live longer than 80 years, right? But the point is that uh, w trees and humans will become, after their peak life, more susceptible to injury and disease and be admittedly less productive, right? You can't go out and play golf like you used to or you know, run like you used to or be the sharpest tack in the, in the office as you once were. Now, uh, with trees, there's also, I'm reading this wonderful book, by the way, called Search for the Mother Tree, uh, which is fascinating, but it's about how trees care for one another in a society, and they care for each other through their root systems and the fungi. Are you aware of this book? Yeah, I, I'm not aware of the book, but I'm, a, I'm aware of the, anyway. um, the concept, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, trees will, the healthier trees will, through their root system, send nutrients over to a tree that might be struggling, which is why you'll see a very healthy forest and they're sharing all of this information and uh, nutrients through their root systems. So when we are by a tree, we're resonating with a being yeah. similar to us. And it's also, I read uh, not long ago, we share some portion of our DNA with trees. Okay. I, there's various numbers, 40%, 50%. So they're visually beautiful to look okay. at, right? And right. they, and because of the way we manage them, they provide us beauty for our built environments while they're regrowing 
at a rate of 2.4 you know, times the number of harvests because the trees have one job in the biosphere. And this is another reason why we love trees. And that is to absorb carbon. Mm. And you know, we, we live in symbiosis with trees. Mm. We breathe out CO2, they breathe it in. They hang on to the carbon, sequester it and give us back oxygen. And this is the key to mitigating climate change. This is why you'll see, and those who view my TED talk, you'll see that I talk about this, that there are countries around the world who have really devastated their forest resource. And they're trying to catch up now and plant millions and millions of trees, problematically not to the same balance of species that once exist. They're sort of treating their areas as plantation. So a monoculture is not as helpful to the environment mm -hmm. as would be a, a variety of species. But still planting trees with the idea that we need to soak carbon out of the atmosphere and sequester it for all time because a tree that once you cut it into boards render those boards into uh, lumber and kiln dry that lumber and by for people who are listening who don't understand kiln drying you put it in this computerized hot box essentially that takes the water out of the tree out of the lumber to a point of six to eight percent of what it weighed when it came off a log. And you know, weight is water, water is weight. So you get it to six to 8% of its wet weight. And at that level, that board, which has rendered into a piece of furniture or flooring, it's because it's organic, it's gonna to adjust to its environment, what's called the equilibrium moisture content of the space. So at six to 8%, it can adjust to a slightly more arid or more humid environment. So people tend to think that wood floors are not alive, but they are. They're taking on and shedding uh, water all the time. Okay. But this carbon sequestration issue about trees is really important. And they're the key to mitigating climate change. You know, occasionally yeah. the issue of climate change can be thrown into the political arena. Well, is it man-made or is, it, uh, is there really climate cooling of the planet or heating of the planet? The fact is that empirical data measuring the CO2 levels in the atmosphere have gone up every year, yeah. especially in, uh, in the last 10 years. So we want these guys, these trees behind me <laughs> to be healthy and happy and absorbing carbon. But when they're done their work, it's yeah. time to render them into beautiful pieces of joinery, flooring, furniture, whatever, cabinetry in our environment so we can live with that end product mm -hmm. from the trees. So, and I'll just throw this into the mix. In, if one suffers manifestations of stress in one's life, they can be, you know, oh, my, my shoulder hurts or you know, I have headaches or whatever. You go to Japan, you will be prescribed quite often. If those issues, those physical issues can be as, ascertained to be part of stress they'll you'll be prescribed forest bathing mm. which seems like a really simple thing but it just means spend a couple of hours of thoughtful time in the forest mm. a few times a week and that concept spreading into western civilization as well people are starting to understand that just go into the woods yeah hang out yeah. think about your life and your sympathetic nervous system will relax your blood pressure will reduce your heart rate will be relaxed and therefore your tension will be um, 
lessened. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely true. We've got um, Amanda Bond, who is an international forest um, bathing and forest walker. I call it call a forest walker, and she's oh, really? writing. Yeah, she's writing for the uh, for the Journal of Biophilic Design magazine. Um, again, if oh, you're joining us halfway fabulous. through this podcast, it comes out in the, um, in in October this year. So make sure people are signed up to the newsletter so they can have a look. Oh yeah. Yeah, but it's um, it's, fa- it's 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 an amazing thing. I mean, like you say, it's it's, an, it's just an inherent uh, reaction to you know, and, and you know, and 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 you just feel amazing when you're when you're under a, the canopy of a tree. There's like it's like they're like it's they're hugging you, aren't they? You know. Um, I did want to ask you. Um, obviously, I mean, we, we I mean, I I always advocate using biofil, you know, using wood where we can, like for tables right. and, and chairs and and flooring and and that's much. Sure. Can. um but for you um obviously with your experience what what do you think the role um plays actually in biophilic design are all woods the same um are some better than others or you know or which ones uh, should we avoid maybe i don't know what, what's what's your sort of take on it and well terms? my blanket statement on that is avoid all that comes from around the world that cannot be certified as legally harvested um it's you can get a lot of exotic woods from around the world, but as Gibson Guitars found out uh, some years back, it's probably a decade ago, uh, when it was determined that they had purchased some illegally traded rosewood and uh, the federal agents shut down two of their factories until they could straighten it all out. And that was a, a big deal. And uh, the issue is this greenwashing with a lot of, Uh, tropical woods Mm. so i mean my whole thing is add woods to your the beauty of woods to your artist palette because i contend that designers and architects are all artists right so um it's easy to say north american hardwoods because of the procedures used to maintain forests and it's all again empirically verified uh so there's no greenwashing there but you should add into it tropical woods that are incredibly durable and beautiful, but it's really incumbent upon us who you would use those woods, like uh, take Ipe, Brazilian walnut, uh, Brazilian cherry, and these kumaru, I'm just spouting off a few species, but <laughs> unless you can determine that there's a legal chain of custody yeah. and that has been certified by the Forest Stewardship Council or some other certification scheme that is known worldwide, make sure that you don't take the risk of specifying illegally traded wood that may be less expensive. But I just feel that the more woods, certainly in North America, all of the species of wood are wonderful to use, but the the measuring point, depending on your application, that you should be aware of is the Janka scale, J-A-N-K-A. And that is a measurement universally accepted as the amount of pressure it takes to depress a 0.444 inch or 0.55 millimeter inch steel ball into the surface of the wood. So that rating, like balsa wood, for example, is 100 pounds per square inch, which means you can take your thumb and run it across a balsa wood piece and you'll leave an indentation. But as uh, you go up to other species of wood through the pines, pines are just soft. Mm -hmm. So they might be 780 pounds per square feet pressure. But 
as you get up into oaks and hickory and certainly the uh, exotic wood or tropical woods from let's say Brazil, you're getting up into 5,000 pounds per square inch, right? So if you look at your design application, high traffic area in the lobby of a office building, you don't wanna put cherry or some softwood there because spiked heels exert an incredible amount of pressure into a small space. You can leave these dents uh, and in urban environments, that's a mode of dress that a lot of people entering that building will use. Mm. Uh, but also people track in gravel from outside and you just want to avoid that. For a residential setting, cherry, which is one of my favorite species of wood, it's gorgeous. But often in people's homes, they're not traipsing around with gravel on their shoes. Quite often now it's the custom to take off your shoes and you want to walk around in your bare feet or in your socks. But uh, that's the thing to take into consideration. So the, what I fear Without education, somebody may say, well, I like the way cherry looks, so I'm putting it in the lobby of this big office building. You don't want to do that um, because then you'll say, well, it's the hardwood that failed, yeah. not my lack of knowledge <laughs> that failed in the situation. So the answer to the question is the woods that you need to avoid that are bad are not legally traded. And there are methods to find out easily uh, through your your general contractor can find out the source of this wood. But for the right application, it, tropical woods are gorgeous. And they are. I have found out that there are organizations that are sustainably managing big chunks of the rainforest, for example, in Brazil, uh, and trying to set up, up a model to emulate for others who control parts of the rainforest who are cutting them down and burning them, yeah. uh, burning the timber, that there is a, a business model to be examined by looking at the long-term and saying, if we sustainably manage these trees and don't take out all of the trees at once, which we learned in the United States in the 1800s, uh, we got into sustainable forestry really 1882 to be precise, but before that, you know, our forebears just leveled all of the forests for farmland, for building houses. And they realized that this was not a sustainable thing to do. So they, somebody, I jokingly say, somebody raised their hand in a town meeting uh, discussing the fact that the hillsides had eroded with rain and flooded the town again. And somebody said, well, if we don't cut down all the trees at once, <laughs> maybe that'll work and i dare say that the uk uh the british came to the united states looking for white oak mm -hmm. because they had decimated their forests to build their battleships because mm -hmm. white oak is the material that you use to build ships uh, i always say that the difference between red oak and white oak is found in the letter w which uh works with water whiskey and wine <laughs> build a ship out <laughs> You can build a ship out of white oak, which you can't out of red because red is more porous. And you can build wine barrels and whiskey barrels out of white oak. So <laughs> it's a little little known, little technical thing. The cell structure in white oak is called tylosis. When you kiln dry red oak, uh, the capillaries, if you will, that transport moisture and water and nutrients up the tree, up the core of the tree to the canopy, 
Those capillaries, when you kiln dry the board in red oak, remain open. You, there's a picture, a classic picture in the book, uh, Understanding Wood by Hoadley, of a little girl blowing bubbles through a piece of red oak. And you can't do that with white oak because as the kiln drives, all those capillaries close off completely. Okay. So that's why you can build a, a ship with white oak. And that's why the British were desperate to come to the United States. I, I don't want to say that the Re Revolutionary War was fought over timber, but I'll say that the British were there to get as much of that white oak as possible. Um, and I think the, the topography of the UK would indicate that there were vast forests that were taken down. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's a little side side yeah, note about that. But uh, you know, yeah. it's I try to not disparage our forebearers here in the United States because they did what they needed to do. Yeah, they needed they to clear those trees. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. Period of growth. Just, it? Came, so, mm. Right. Right. Yeah. We, so, know, we know now. I mean, we, know me, now. <laughs> yeah, we do know now, and we're trying to catch up, but we certainly in Europe and in the United States have seen the benefit of sustainably managing the forests. And what's happening to the rainforest is it's uh, sustainable forestry, really. It's how can I, the farmer on this plot of land, benefit the most yeah. from this? Well, yeah. I don't have the way to do anything with these gigantic trees so i'm just going to cut them down and burn them plant soy or graze cattle but the little discussed part of that is that once you've converted that land from timber to grazing it's really only good for about three years and it becomes uh, yeah. like a parking lot after that so there's this group uh, i'm aware of in brazil that they only remove five trees from an area the size of a, a football field. We would call it soccer here. You would call it football. Uh, and, uh, you know, that square uh, meter area or hectares would be, if you only take out five trees, the rest of them will help the others grow, right? They'll okay. let them, they'll nurture them just as we nurture our children. Mm -hmm. And within a really short period of time, it will be a lush forest. And if you fly over parts of the rainforest, you can see that there is this managed timber that you can't even tell from satellite photographs because yeah. the new ones are popping up amongst the big ones. And, uh, you know, they're just happily growing and absorbing carbon uh, mm. with the, the enthusiasm of youth. I'll mm. put it that way. I like that. That's a nice, so, that's, that's a lovely way of putting it. That's a lovely way of putting it. I yeah. think, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to hear that that's being done. Um, as you say, you know, just clearing a, a, a land, just, just, it's money, isn't it? It's cost. It's like short termism as opposed to actually, hang on a minute, it's going to end up being, it's going to shoot themselves in the foot ultimately if they're not managed properly. So it's really, really exactly. good. Exactly. People and are learning from, from others. I, do, I call it my, it, yeah. Right. And I think that's a myopic view to take, yeah. uh, you know, because we as humans, I, I like to say we are but an eye blink in eternity, right? Yeah. We yeah. are, our time on this planet is so short, but we can't cut down all the trees without regard to what, what are our children going to inherit? What are our grandchildren, our great grandchildren, those who follow us? We need to plan for their future and mm -hmm. their carbon sequestration and the beauty that's coming into their world through yeah. uh, wood in their built environments. So um, if you, uh, I, I want to make a statement about clear cutting first. 
clear cutting in hardwoods is bad. Clear cutting in pine is the way to manage that resource. And uh, there's softwoods and hardwoods. Softwoods are the evergreens uh, and the hardwoods are broadleaf trees that shed their leaves in autumn. But what the situation is with softwoods, if you look at North America as an example, there's pine in the Southeast and there's pine in the Northwest. And the way to manage that because the trees are shade intolerant okay. is to clear where we would in hardwoods, let's say in, in Brazil, they only take out five trees from a football field. In softwoods, you take the whole football field down to the ground. Okay. And then you have to replant by hand. Right. Um, a f fine example of this is that, um, I mean, our resource management in North America and is true in, in Europe as well, that it's, it's a systematic thing. We have to look at the way to keep this propagating and going forward. Uh, the fast way to do that is to replant by hand and grow it like a crop, okay? Uh, but what happened in 1981, the Mount St. Helens eruption in Washington state, which you may not be old enough to know, but it was a big deal. It blew this mountain, uh, the top of the mountain off. And in doing so, I lived in Colorado at the time, which is thousands of miles away. And I had ash from that eruption on my car wow. in, in Colorado Springs. And this was uh, north around Seattle that this took place. Anyway, the point is, in that explosion, which was massive in its power, it knocked down, didn't pulverize, but knocked down millions of pine trees, softwood trees, yeah. uh, the coniferous trees, the cone-bearing trees. And... Uh, to the north of Mount St. Helens is federal land and that was just left to its own devices to grow back as it would you know there's got to be pine cones around there and the forests are going to grow but to the south is private ownership warehouser was owned 45,000 acres to the south they set themselves to immediately uh, oh there's the cat uh, <laughs> they set themselves to the task of reclaiming all that timber which had been blown down and use it for building materials trusses uh, floor joists framing material right so it got used again uh, and then they replanted 18.4 million trees on the 45,000 acres and they planted them by hand to the balance of species that existed before the eruption. So if you look at satellite photographs from 1981 to satellite photographs now, mm. you'll see a lush forest that's now home to, it's a great ecosystem. It's home to animals and, you know, all of all kinds and wildlife of all kinds and fungi are growing again and other species of plants. The trees are not yet 300 feet tall. <laughs> but they will get there. But that's a lot, you know, that's a living thing. So yeah. humans in that situation can take control, whereas eternity will show that the land to the north, it'll eventually grow. But, yeah. you know, yeah. we've been around on the planet for millions of years. And <laughs> so if we took satellite photographs in a million years, that would that uh, timber may be fully grown again. But yeah. we have to manage it with softwood. So I always put that caveat out there that if you look, if you're in the Pacific Northwest or parts of probably Europe, 
where you are in a pine area, softwood area, you'll see clear cuts and then say, that guy, that Criswell guy lied to me. <laughs> Not true. Uh, there's different ways of managing it. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, well, thanks for that. It's really interesting. I didn't I didn't realize that about forest management. So I'm, I'm learning shed loads here. So this is great. So I'm going to be recommending this. That's, some, that's good. Um, I've got some mates who are real, really into trees and plants and woods and stuff. So this is going to be a really good asset in their little, um, you know, their briefcase of of, uh, of of marketing and also, you know, convincing people to to put more wood, um, in our built environment. Um, yes. Um, I was going to say, I mean, we've we've spoken why it's beneficial. Um, but is there anything else that you might like to add? I mean, you spoke about health. There's obviously the sustainability aspect, the carbon storage um is there any other aspect or would you like to talk about where you can use it you know have any well, examples or anything well i can get into that a little bit i mean the the thing is that uh of course we've talked about its sustainability it's mm. it's regenerative nature uh which is important it's carbon sequestration really important and uh, i think that legality of harvest especially in these times is very important yeah. um but what we're finding with new technology, we're finding that you can use wood in ways that 30 years ago you couldn't. For example, you can take radiata pine from New Zealand, which is soft, and put it through an acetylation process, which is basically industrial strength vinegar uh, in a compression tank. It's called acetylized wood. In the UK, uh, there's a couple of different companies that do this, and it changes the cell structure of the wood in such a way, in a non-toxic way, that it will re repel water. When we talked about white oak uh, yeah. repelling water, it, for cladding, you can take radiata pine and transport it all the way from New Zealand or Chile to the Netherlands, put it through this process, or in Wales, they're two different companies that do this and mm -hmm. use wood on the outside of the building to great long-term effect. Mm -hmm. And um, okay. then there's another process that I, I don't want to throw any brand names out here. So I, I'll just say there's another process that actually adjusts the cell structure of the wood, turns it in dark brown, but actually makes that wood harder. So where you take the acetylated wood it's still soft. It's still, you wouldn't want to put it down on a traffic area because it's 780 pounds per square inch. Uh, but this other process that turns the board brown that will eventually gray with natural oxidation, um, but it's now closer to an oak in its hardness, its Janka scale rating, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. So uh, I just think that and I, I'm very familiar with and have done some presentations on behalf of a flooring company out of Austria that takes modern technology and takes uh, their, their certified on all levels through the International Future Living Institute uh, and well building and all that. This is another thing of look for the best certified, you know, yeah. sustainable wood. And this is a flooring company of which there are no others certified at this level but they um what they do is they take certified timber cut a wear layer on the top of the board on flooring board and put a cross banded 
piece in the middle that's usually a softwood like a, a larch or a pine to uh, send the stresses of installation through that centerboard and then on the bottom side is the balancing thickness of the same timber like walnut on the top you put a walnut floor down there now you put uh, walnut on the bottom and going cross grain yeah i don't want to get too lost in the woods there but uh you can lay that floor down and their whole thing is you install it with no finish on it because we as you just opened your eyes wide there the thing is that uh their contention is that the biophilic benefits of a wood floor in your house are let's just say drastically reduced when you put plastic finish on it because then it becomes plastic supported by wood so i'm now on the train of saying you can have uh just oil finished floor in your house and it's going to be healthier for you yeah they have they've been able to put this wood in uh spas and bathrooms where you never used to do that and there's they have promotional pictures on their site that show people in a spa in their bare feet with water all around you just wipe it up and if you spill that glass of red wine on your floor in your kitchen or your your living room or whatever no worries you just use warm water and soap and you can just clean it up because there you've left all those cells that take on and shed water it's open and you can clean it up instantly. And then you just use a plant-based soap to clean the floors. And uh, anyway, your connection with the flooring without plastic between you and the floor is more, more visceral. So I, I'm learning that there's so many things you can do with wood that uh, I, there was a company who was making wood stationary. Now wood stationary and paper comes from wood, but this is, hardwood sliced at micro thin levels mm. that you can actually read the newspaper through a piece of hard maple because wow. they can slice it so thin and of course veneer technology has gotten better and better so you take down a gorgeous oak tree for example that for lumber looks really attractive you know to cut it looks like it'll yield really beautiful uh, boards but a veneer manufacturer can take that log and turn it at, I think it's might be 0.55 millimeters. I'm not great with millimeters, but a very thin slice can take that log and spread its beauty across thousands and thousands of square feet when applied onto uh, an organic panel behind it. For example, in uh, Dubai, where I've spent a lot of time in the UAE, the Emirates first class lounge in Dubai, because that's the headquarters of Emirates Air. Their first class lounge has 1.5 kilometers of wall space covered by American walnut veneers, which is pretty spectacular. But you couldn't have done that with solid timber. That's just too much because walnut in the United States is 1% of our forest resource. And uh, but it's cherished for its appearance and its depth of color. So Mm -hmm. That's a, a whole thing to consider is using veneers can also achieve a lot of your biophilic design needs. And you put that on a substrate that is uh, hopefully uh, certified to be sustainably managed 
The problem, there's a company in the United States called Lumber Liquidators that ran into a big problem with putting, let's say, oak veneers on top of substrates produced in China with off-gassing of formaldehyde, carcinogenic resins to put that substrate together, yeah. you know, and they it costs them millions of dollars to fix that problem. So you want to look at a substrate that is free of toxins. Yeah. And that just takes a little more diligent work on the, you know, the due diligence, if you will, on doing the spec for the project. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, you can use wood in ways. I have a friend who built a grandfather clock with all cherry and he made all of the gears, all of the chains for those things, the balancing chains that keep the grandfather clock going, the face, the, the hands, everything was made out of solid hardwood. You can do things with wood that you would not normally think of, like for flooring or furniture or whatever. And now this notion of live edge furniture is a big thing. Okay. If you look at uh, uh, now, there are distributors who are selling, and I know they do this in the UK, where they take a tree and they render it into slabs, yeah. maybe two and a half inches to four inches thick. They air dry them for a long time because you can't put a big thick board like that in a kiln. Uh, but you leave the bark along the side yeah, yeah. and you leave natural characteristics in the board. And uh, live edge slabs are the next thing. And here in the United States, I don't know if it's true in the UK, uh, it's the fact that there are 34 million trees cut down in urban environments every year and disposed of at landfills because it's a standalone maple tree in this block in a city, name the city, Boston, Philadelphia, whatever. So there's this young group of people who are coming out of colleges like Yale and Harvard and uh, all around the country who have taken on this challenge of reusing that, that urban wood so that it doesn't go to landfills. And just because if it goes to a landfill, it starts to release its carbon back into the atmosphere yeah. because half of the kiln dry board's weight is stored carbon. Right. So, and it'll be, it'll stay in that piece of furniture forever unless it burns. So there's this whole new movement about wood, this whole new mindset that we want to save all this urban wood. Well, every tree yields about 500 board feet of lumber. I don't, can't convert it to metric, yeah. but uh, about 500 board feet per tree and you know, the, the thing is that we, we're operating at such a high level of processing that one tree, yeah, it just doesn't work for us. So what will happen is that the guy might just cut the tree down and then it gets wasted. Yeah. So I'm hopeful for the future because these young people are taking on these new challenges and in the coming years, we'll find new ways to, to use wood, but yeah uh, that's fantastic anyway. that's really good I, I, i'm gonna have to look up there must be happening over here as well um you know like you say i mean i it, it breaks my heart when you see people and then they, you know especially people move into a new house and there's a there's a tree there and it's like it's been there forever and then they come along and they just chop it down i i, I cry <laughs> i feel for yeah. that tree you know especially when it's not got if it's got disease or something i can i, I can sort of understand it but 
I, I just I hate to see it. And you think what a waste it is. And then you see it all being sliced up and thrown on the back of a lorry or worse being bought, you know, when they chip it, chip them. It's, I mean, it's like it's just like yeah. pulverizing something living and it's it's, it's heartbreaking. But it, being able to get hold yes. of something and create something. I've, I've got a friend who does wood sculpture and he rescues yeah. trees. Um, and obviously he does these fantastic, um, really funky uh, sculpture, which he then puts in parks or whatever. Oh, half the time he's commissioned to do things. Um, but wow. there must be, um, yeah, there must be a more joined up way of, of like coordinating this sort of uh, these tree things. So sort of guerrilla well, wood collection or something we need. Uh, yes, I mean, just these yeah. young, yeah, this young group of people are smart. And, and they're savvy and they're dedicated yeah. because they want their future yeah. to be, you know, carbon sequestration and all those Absolutely. elements of sustainability to be part of their future. So yeah, yeah. Uh, rather yeah. than waste these trees, let's turn them into things. Yeah, so, yeah, it's true. And of course, you're surrounded by it, you know, you're every day and you've, you're living with it. You're going to respect it and therefore hopefully not not chop your own trees down and, and sort of your family and right. everything else. So hopefully that will go forward. We're um we're running out of time a little bit, so I'm I not, so yeah. um so I before before I ask you my final question, which I ask everybody on the sure. podcast, um I there was this sort of two things really. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add, or and or would you like to talk about um sort of the Maggie Centre and um and oh. healthcare in particular? What what what, what, what let's, let's do that, and, and I can yeah. as with everything else that I've talked about, I can relate this to my personal experience. Yeah. And uh, that is that uh, when you look at Maggie's Center, which is a calming space for patients or yeah. those waiting for patients, right? And I encourage everybody listening to this to look up Maggie's Centers because it's a great example of this. Yeah. And in, in my personal life this summer, everybody's aware of COVID. Uh, my wife and I have been very cautious and yet we wound up getting this new variant. My wife only had a cold. I was uh, taken to the hospital by ambulance uh, and nearly died. Uh, this is two days after testing positive. I nearly died. And I was in hospital for six days in a isolation wing of the hospital. And, you know, I just felt like I, I couldn't, I lost the ability to walk. My, I was on oxygen. I wasn't on a um, ventilator, thankfully, but this came out of nowhere and it was it was bad i just hate being in the hospital it's a terrible place to be yeah, yeah. Uh, while there was a window to the outside i looked at the sky and not trees or anything so they said the doctor said it's going to take you a while to recover from this this is a bad case of covid so i was there six days i come home those who are listening to this can't see but I, you can see behind me we put this room on the back of our house that's three walls of picture windows, looks back into our garden and not only our mature trees, but those of our neighbors, yeah. we're in a mature tree neighborhood. And while I struggled to get home and be in this space, yeah. I have visiting nurses who could come and evaluate my progress. And they were um, gobsmacked by the alacrity with which i got better you know they would come and check on me one day and come back two days later and they'd say your recovery is astounding and i recovered within 10 days to almost 100 percent. and i contend from my personal experience it's because i was surrounded by nature and 
I would not have recovered that fast if I'd stayed in hospital. Mm. So I think that healthcare, which I'll write about in a future article for Biophilic Design, Journal of Biophilic Design, uh, that is, a, that's changing uh, very quickly, the attitude about that. So mm. um, yeah, I think Maggie Center and My Backyard are two places where you can heal really fast. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I actually interviewed uh, Dame Laura Lee for one of my very first podcasts. So if people are listening to this or they can go onto the website, journalofbiophilicdesign.com and go to the podcast area and search for the interview that I did with her. She's the CEO and, um, of uh, of Maggie's and she just talks about um, the joy that she's actually joy she used the word joy and I've I've picked that wow. word up and I kind of I sort of wheel it out but and I know you also talk about flourishing in your article that you've written for us um because yeah. of it and it is it's it's um it's just, it's like it's really life affirming actually and she just the, the um enthusiasm and the description that she talks about she says for instance with cancer patients um when you're undergoing chemotherapy, your your uh, touch and your sensitivity is, is heightened. So actually sort of touching metal handles and all this kind of stuff, which we don't right. think about, um, is all sort of thing. So if you've got, so they've swapped them out for, right. when they can with wooden handles and, and sort of wooden. So you don't get that weird sort of thing. And she's also mentioned that she's put like, um, or they've, they've put like gravel as you come up to the door. So you have this kind of crunch sound, right. which is more natural rather than just feet on asphalt or feet on concrete. So it's a softer, right. it's right. kind of resonant of like the blue mind as well, or walking through forest or whatever. So um, yeah, so I encourage people to go go to the site and have a listen um, or look through their well, feeds. You used the key word in that, uh, your last sentence, which was resonance. Yeah. or it resonates you know that when we talked about uh, how similar to trees we are yeah. yeah and we have a kinship with them the resonances that you feel putting your hand on a wooden yeah. handrail versus that of steel yeah and having gone through chemotherapy myself i can tell you that it makes a huge difference and it's all in the word resonance mm. and That's it's cool. a it's a wonderful thing and i, I would love to uh, yeah. i'll look up this uh this woman i mean it's great yeah. you're you're acquainted with the ceo of maggie center if i ever get back to the uk i would like to be introduced to that yeah. woman yeah. because yeah, yeah. It, they do good work yeah so fantastic, anyway fantastic again i hope i am i'm a I'm a storyteller by nature, so I hope I didn't just usurp all the time and <laughs> left you hanging with three questions to talk no, about. No, absolutely not. Well, I might have to get you back on, you see, and talk about something specific. So, you know, um, I'm just leaving, I'm leaving the listeners um, in, sure. in, in hiatus to kind of like to find out more with the missing questions. Come back soon. Um, but so the, the really the final question right. that, that I ask everybody on this podcast um, sure. um, is if you could paint the world with a magic brush of biophilia what would it look like i it's a funny thing i spent a lot of time thinking about this the last few days and i go back to when i was a youngster i was maybe 10 or 12 and learning about geometric shapes uh polygons and all that i had this vision having nothing to do with architecture i didn't i just <laughs> thought if i could build a house i would build it in maybe an octagonal circle okay. if you will yeah but i wanted to have in the center of the house a garden and trees growing in the center of the house have all glass on the inside of that shape and i thought this would be a fabulous thing and it was sort of prescient of my years to come much later but 
uh, I would have houses built with trees growing them. Uh, and you can see this across China and Southeast Asia. There you'll see whole buildings with trees growing on balconies and trees growing on the roof. And, and that's sort of my broad brushstroke view of it. More of that. Uh, grow, for example, your vegetables and spices on the outside of your building as uh, Yost Baker in Australia does. If you're going to have a, for example, in his houses, uh, dining houses, uh, gin and tonic, he's grown the Jupiter uh, juniper right there. Mm -hmm. And he's grown all of the, the various ingredients for his meals on the outside of the building with natural sunlight and uh, rain and you know just that's that's the future that's my biophilic design future so thank you for listening to the journal of biophilic design podcast